Welcome, friends! I'm your host, Adrian, and yes, you found us, Stamp Stories, a podcast about Canadian stamps and the stories behind them. Yeah! So if you love stamp collecting, Canadian history, or both, this is the show for you. This is episode number 26, and today we'll be talking about approximately 7,821 kilometers of paved roads. Yes, that's right. Today we'll be talking about the Trans-Canada Highway, the second longest national highway in the world, and the stamps that celebrate it. More in just a moment. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm so excited to share the history of the Trans-Canada Highway. We'll talk about before it was created and how it came to be, and of course, the lovely stamps Canada Post has created to celebrate its approximately 7,821 kilometers of paved roads. As of this recording, it currently ranks as the fourth longest highway in the world and the second longest national highway. To begin the story of a highway, though, we should start with a very brief history of the automobile in Canada. The first Canadian automobile was built in 1867 by Henry Seth Taylor and was regarded as a novelty, as were the single-cylinder vehicles that were eventually imported from the United States around the turn of the century. It was really in the 20th century that the car came into its own, and specifically for our subject matter today, the idea of the cross-country travel by car. The first North American coast-to-coast trip was in the United States in 1903, and interestingly enough, by Toronto-born Horatio Nelson Jackson. He and his driving partner, Sewell K. Crocker, in 1903, became the first people to drive an automobile across the United States. It actually all came from a bet, strange as it were. Horatio Nelson Jackson was an auto enthusiast who differed with the then-prevailing wisdom that the automobile was a passing fad and simply a recreational plaything. While in San Francisco's University Club as a guest on May 18, 1903, he agreed to a $50 wager, equivalent to just shy of $1,400 USD in 2019 dollars, to prove that a four-wheeled machine could be driven across the country. He accepted even though he did not own a car, had little experience driving, and had no maps to follow. Jackson at the time lived in Vermont, but while visiting in San Francisco, he had been taking driving lessons. However, because of his lack of mechanical experience, Horatio Nelson Jackson convinced a young mechanic, Sewell K. Crocker, to serve as his travel companion, mechanic, and backup driver. He bought a slightly used two-cylinder 20-horsepower Winton, which he named the Vermont after his home state. He would leave San Francisco on May 23rd and arrive in New York City on July 26, 1903. The trip took him 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes and required over 3,000 liters of gasoline. The year 1903 was another milestone for cars, but in Canada. It was in 1903 that 27 motorists gathered at Queen's Park to form the Toronto Automobile Club, which would eventually become the basis of the CAA, or the Canadian Automobile Association. There were founding members of Canada's first advocacy group for motorists, and their first president, Dr. Perry E. Doolittle, would become an important voice in the push for a trans-Canadian highway. Also in 1903, the Ford Motor Company was founded, and only one year later, Ford Motor Company of Canada Limited was founded on August 17, 1904. The purpose of this division was the manufacturing and selling of Ford automobiles in Canada and throughout the British Empire. It was originally located in Walkerville, Ontario, now part of Windsor, Ontario, and it was founded by Gordon McGregor, who convinced a group of investors to invest in Henry Ford's new automobile, which was being produced across the river in Detroit. 
Things rapidly moved from there, and by 1906, Ford Motor Company became America's largest car manufacturer, producing over 8,700 cars. In 1908, Ford introduced what would become one of the most popular cars in the world at the time, the Model T. That same year, in 1908, William C. Durant would form General Motors. We'll now leave the history of auto companies for another day and turn back to the Canadian interest in the automobile at the time. As mentioned earlier, the idea of cross-country travel was always something popular from the early days of the automobile. In Canada, it was no different. As a matter of fact, in 1912, Albert E. Todd, who would later be the mayor of Victoria, B.C. from 1917 to 1919, had a gold medal struck to be offered as a prize for the first car to drive from Nova Scotia across all of Canada to the Pacific entirely on Canadian roads. In 1912, there was also a meeting of the automobile enthusiasts in, in Port Alberni. The Malahat Highway from Victoria had just been opened, and this was as far west as anyone could drive in Canada. Speeches were made then by various politicians and auto enthusiasts, and a highway was called for that would link the country by road instead of just rail. There were only 50,000 licensed cars in Canada at the time, but the number was growing rapidly and the motorists could see the future. On that day in Alberni, May 4th, a signpost was constructed and planted at the end of the road. It read simply Canadian Highway and the arrow pointed east back down the road. One of the people in attendance at this event was Albert Todd, who was the creator of the Todd Medal. The thought was it wouldn't take that long for someone to take the medal, as many predicted the Trans-Canada Highway would be built within five years. Only three months after Todd announced the medal, Thomas Wilby and Jack Haney, on August 27, 1912, set out to become the first motorists to cross Canada. This was quite a feat, considering that there were only 16 kilometers of paved roads in the entire country. So on that fine day, August 27, 1912, Thomas and Jack crossed the country from Halifax to Victoria, over 6,800 kilometers in 52 days. However, they failed to win the Todd Medal. There were simply some stretches of the travel where no clear roads existed for which they could travel on. Several times in northern Ontario, where there were no roads, they were forced to load the car onto a train, and they ferried it across Lake Superior on a schooner. In British Columbia, they ran out of road and had to detour through Washington State for 135 kilometers. Even though they took a detour and didn't win the medal, their arrival was celebrated in Vancouver, Victoria, and Alberni, by the Highway Association. The popularity of the automobile in Canada grew, and between 1918 and 1923, Canada became the second largest vehicle producer and a major exporter of automobile and auto parts. Also during this time, the number of motor cars in Canada increased to 200,000, and in 1919, the Canada Highways Act was passed. It aimed to stimulate road construction and encourage uniformity of road standards. However, things were far from a promised trans-Canadian highway. Publicity around this cause would get a nice shot in the arm by Dr. Perry Doolittle, who was elected the first president of the CAA, the Canadian Automobile Association, in 1920 and would hold that office until his death in 1933. Before he would pass on, though, he was responsible for mounting vigorous campaigns to expand Canada's highways. In 1922, for example, the CAA would collectively urge the federal government to build a Trans-Canada Highway. And in 1925, the inventor, physician, and car advocate Dr. Perry Doolittle would embark on a highly publicized trans-Canadian adventure by car. He would in fact become the first person to drive a car from ocean to ocean, staying within Canada. As mentioned, he made it a big publicity event, as Dr. Perry Doolittle did the cross-country trek with filmmaker Ed Fleckinger, who recorded the trip for all to see. They would drive a donated Model T 
and to solve the problem of there being no roads in certain remote areas, they simply drove along the existing rail tracks. They did this by swapping the car's rubber-tired wheels for ones of flanged steel, and with the permission of the Canadian Pacific, drove on the tracks across the swamps of northern Ontario and through the most challenging mountains of the Rockies. It would take them a total of 39 days to make the trek. Now, if you recall, that 1912 Todd Medal is still out there for anyone who completed that cross-country trek by car. However, Dr. Perry Doolittle would not be able to claim the Todd Medal because the railway was not considered a Canadian road, which was a requirement for the prize to be claimed. There was a different prize for Dr. Doolittle, however. He got a serious conversation started. Everyone seemingly agreed a national highway made sense, but the responsibility of actually building a truly trans-Canadian road fell to the provinces and not the federal government. Furthermore, no one seemed to agree on how the cost should be shared among the different levels of government or what routes should be taken, especially when considering the immense challenges of the Rockies and the Ontario swamps. It would take the Great Depression for progress to be made. With the Unemployment Relief Act of 1930, the federal government granted over $19 million, or $365 million in Canadian dollars in 2019, to the provinces for the construction of sections of the Trans-Canadian Highway. Between 1930 and 1937, lots of work was done, including a huge project in British Columbia. Jointly funded by the provincial and federal governments during the Great Depression, the Big Bend Highway was completed as the part of the Central Trans-Provincial Highway. The route followed the Columbia River between Revelstoke and Golden through the Selkirk Mountains. The completion of this stretch of highway in 1940 finally linked Alberta to the Pacific, but it was unpaved, treacherous, and closed during the winter. This is a situation that would be addressed in later years, but for now in the summer there was a route, and the winter travelers could use a car shuttle train. During World War II, there was also strategic roads that would be built in Canada. The Alaska Highway, for example, was built in 1942 to connect isolated Alaska with Edmonton, Alberta. This was critical to help defend America's northern outpost against the threat of Japanese invasion. While the United States bore the full cost of construction, the road and other facilities in Canada were agreed to be turned over to Canadian authorities after the war had ended. In Ontario, big strides were made too, with the last missing stretch of gravel was completed between Hearst and Geraldton in 1943. We also encounter what will become something common as we continue this history of the Trans-Canadian Highway as an announcement on June 12, 1943 was made that the Trans-Canadian Highway was open. The reality is, though, that three-quarters of the Canadian Highway system was unpaved, dirt road, and there was very little consistency province to province. Also during World War II, gas was rationed, so taking advantage of these new roads, no matter their state, would have to wait, especially with the Todd Medal from 1912 still not claimed. Eventually, in 1946, after the war, Alex McFarlane, a retired brigadier from Winnipeg, decided to take the challenge to make the coast-to-coast trek. McFarlane was a larger-than-life character who made and lost two fortunes before finding success in the textile industry. He was also a born salesman and negotiator, and he persuaded Chevrolet to give him a new style master sedan for the epic drive. He and his friend Kenneth McGalvery, who navigated but never took the wheel, crossed the country from Lewisburg, Nova Scotia to Victoria in just nine days and... That is about 30 days less than the trip Dr. Perry Doolittle had made just 20 years earlier. McFarlane faced 
few problems outside of the elements of rain and snow, but he was able to complete his trip all on Canadian roads. When he made it to the West Coast, McFarlane was announced the winner of the Todd Medal, and it was presented to him at a dinner in Victoria. However, it was not presented by Albert Todd himself, who had died 18 years earlier. Now, with World War II over, Canada, like the U.S., was entering a period of prosperity. Unemployment and inflation were low, and there was no need for public work projects like the ones that the Depression had helped to build the initial pass of roads across the country. Nonetheless, there was an understanding that a proper highway needed to be passed by some in government. So in 1948, there was a conference around the highways, as this CBC report notes at the time. The Minister of Mines and Resources, Mr. McKinnon, has announced that on December 15th, Dominion and provincial representatives will get together to discuss the establishment of a first-class Trans-Canada Highway. Powell Smiley reports from Ottawa. This conference will concern itself exclusively with matters of policy. For some years, it's been a debatable point whether or not a Trans-Canada Highway actually exists. Back in the early years of the Depression, the federal government, through the Relief Act, offered to underwrite a percentage of the costs of building and improving roads in the provinces, provided those roads formed a continuous route from coast to coast. Accordingly, between 1931 and 1934, each province designated a specific provincial highway or highways as part of such a route and passed an order in council to that effect. Consequently, the Canadian Government Travel Bureau isn't wrong in stating that motorists may now travel over improved highways from one ocean to the other in Canada provided the trip isn't attempted in winter, that is. The Big Bend section of the British Columbia portion of the route is closed from the middle of October until the late spring. In comparison with the old corduroy roads of pioneer days, the provincial highways are improved. Considerable work was done on some of them during the war years, but for the most part, they're still far from being an attraction to tourists. The federal government wants them to be attractive, hence the coming conference. After it's been decided that the provinces do in fact want a Trans-Canada Highway, and here the point will probably be argued that the federal government should make a grant to the provinces applicable to all the provincial highways, rather than just those sections in the transcontinental system, after that decision has been made, the provincial authorities will be asked to decide what route they want the Trans-Canada Highway to follow within their several boundaries. Then, and only then, will the conversations reach the technical level. There'll be another conference at which the engineers will take over from the administrators and talk about such things as level crossings, grades, curves, and other professional matters. Finally, the federal government will offer to pay a certain percentage of the cost of the project. If a satisfactory financial arrangement is worked out, Canada will ultimately have a cross-country highway along which motor vehicle drivers can travel in comfort. This is Powell Smiley speaking from Ottawa. A year later, in December 1949, the Trans-Canada Highway Act was passed through Parliament right after Newfoundland joined Canada. It became more important than ever to connect all the provinces together by highway. This act committed the federal government to pay in half the estimated $300 million cost of building the highways and the provinces would pay the rest. The goal was to have a highway completed by 1956. However, as everyone knows, when it comes to these big type of projects with governments involved, costs soared and deadlines were missed as the real challenge of a permanent construction made itself clear. By 1956, the federal and provincial governments had to come to a new agreement and they came up with this cost sharing agreement to encourage the provinces to upgrade existing roadways to the trans-Canadian standards and with that would receive 90% of the cost for building new stretches to fill in the gaps in the roadway. 
To qualify as a Trans-Canadian Highway, the paved road must be at least 6.7 meters wide, with unpaved shoulders of at least another 3.3 meters on each side. Hills cannot exceed 6 degrees of slope angle, and drivers must always be able to see at least 183 meters down the road ahead. It would take until 1971 for the full length of the Trans-Canadian Highway to be completed to this standard. Nonetheless, with this new agreement in 1956, the work continued on the most difficult sections and a new goal was set to connect all 10 provinces by paved road by 1967, Canada's centennial year. The two sections of the Trans-Canadian Highway that created the greatest difficulty were alongside Lake Superior between Sault Ste. Marie, a gap of 265 kilometers, and a 145-kilometer section over the Rogers Pass between Revelstoke and Golden in BC. So in Ontario, there were challenges of swamps, and they needed to have a right-of-way cleared through Virgin Forest for 157 of the 265 kilometers. They also needed to build 25 bridges. With federal funding, though, that stretch was officially opened in September 1960. The other difficult challenges were in BC. They abandoned the Big Bend Highway entirely for a more direct route through the Rogers Pass. The Rogers Pass route followed some of the early tracks of the Transcontinental Railway, and to avoid the snow issues that closed Big Bend during the winter, they built a number of snowsheds and earth dams to protect the highway from winter avalanches and rock slides, which was crucial because the area gets about 60 meters of snowfall each year. The Roger Pass route was opened in July 1962, and this completion marked the official opening of the Trans-Canadian Highway. Now, typical of Canadian-provincial relations ever since or before, there was a disagreement on celebrations of the official opening. Premier W.A.C. Bennett of British Columbia declared the road open at a ceremony on July 31st without once mentioning Canada. On September 3rd, Prime Minister of Canada John Diefenbaker declared the highway open at an official ceremony at the Rogers Pass route, filling in a final patch. Let's listen to the coverage from the CBC at the time, beginning with a speech by Prime Minister of Canada John Diefenbaker. This highway... May it serve to bring Canadians closer together. May it bring to all Canadians a renewed determination to individually do their part to make this nation greater and greater still and worthy of the destiny that the fathers of Confederation had expected when through their act of faith they made it possible. And above all, I express the hope and the prayer today that this highway will always serve the cause of peace and that it will never hear the marching tramp of warlike feet. So Prime Minister Stephen Baker then descends the stage, puts on a hard hat. He is then accompanied over to the highway as the announcer for the CBC News. Following his address, Prime Minister Mr. Diefenbaker tamped down officially the last stretch of Canada's national highway before he declared the Canadian National Highway officially opening before a crowd of two or three thousand assembled on the mountaintop. They shovel in some asphalt from a uh, loader into a small spot that they've left undone, and then they hand him a tamper, which is you know, that metal thing where they can pound the uh, asphalt out. So he hits down on the asphalt a couple of times, and then he approaches a microphone and says, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, 
I declare officially open the Trans-Canada Highway. Now, even with this so-called official opening and all the pageantry involved, the work was not really done yet. BC continued to improve the highway through the canyon along the Fraser River by blasting several tunnels, with that finally opening in 1966. And then Newfoundland would be the last province to complete its highway. There were several reasons for that, too. Newfoundland had the second longest distance to cover after Ontario and the most difficult terrain after British Columbia. With a population of half a million people, it was also the second smallest of uh, populations to absorb the cost, and its per capita income was the lowest. However, on July 12, 1966, Premier Joey Smallwood and Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson attended an official opening ceremony at Pearson's Peak, the midpoint of Newfoundland's section of the Trans-Canadian Highway. Premier Smallwood used this moment to talk about his great hopes for a greater investment in the Trans-Canadian project, including a tunnel across Belle Isle, and Lester B. Pearson handled the event with good humor and political savviness. Here are the speeches of the day from Premier Smallwood and Prime Minister Pearson from live CBC coverage at the time. Now the chairman for today's ceremonies, marking the opening of the Trans-Canada Highway in Newfoundland, the Premier, the Honorable J.R. Smallwood, approaches the speaker's platform. We are met on one of the, uh, not only one of the most historic occasions in all the history of Newfoundland, but also on one of the happiest. We have built not just a road. It's a highway into the very future of Newfoundland, and it's a highway into the unity of our people in Newfoundland. To bring Newfoundlanders together and to make one people of us where we were separated and isolated and cut off from each other for nearly 500 years of our history. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more to say except this. And I want the Prime Minister in the captive audience in here on the platform surrounded by thousands upon thousands of Newfoundlanders. And in his presence, I want to say this to him. We have two feelings toward him at the moment. One feeling is a feeling of deep appreciation. We have another feeling toward him at the moment, and it's this, a feeling of ex expectation. In fact, you might call it great expectation. We have not finished the job yet. Now we turn to two new jobs, perhaps even bigger than Trans-Canada Highway. One is a great new program of paving. And about 3,000 miles of that is unpaved. We've got to pave it. But well, there's an even bigger job than that, and that is the road across Labrador. That great new road is as necessary to Newfoundland today as the Trans-Canada Highway was before we built it. 
Now, there is a gap. The gap is the Strait of Belle Isle. So, what we've got to do is this. We've got to build the road across Labrador and then connect that road with our network of roads here on this island. We've got to connect both of them by building a tunnel under the Strait of Belle Isle. And I say today that we're going to need some help to do it. Not in men, we've got the men. But we do need a little cash. We need just a little wee bit of cash, say 60 or 70 million dollars, or 70 or 80 million. If you will pay us 90 cents to the dollar to build this tunnel and this road, then uh, Canada would be a mighty nation indeed, and Newfoundland will be a mighty province indeed. Uh, a hint, a hint, you know, just a hint, a broad hint. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to call on the Prime Minister of Canada to unveil the plaque, but uh, I do hope that he will uh, favor us with uh, some remarks. I hope he just won't go and unveil the facts of Commons and uh, speak to us. The, uh, the man who made all this possible today, the right honorable, blessed be here. All those who have gathered here at Pearson Peak give the Prime Minister of Canada a standing ovation. The Prime Minister. Mr. Premier, my colleagues, honored guests, ladies and gentlemen, I listen to your Premier with a feeling of mixed pleasure and apprehension this afternoon. I realize he had asked my colleagues and me to come here as he wished on your behalf to express the appreciation of his government and the people of this province for what the federal government was able to do to bring this great project to a conclusion, the Trans-Canada Highway. And I was happy to acknowledge his appreciation, gave me a glow of satisfaction of feeling I had been a part of this great work. And then I realized he got us down here for another purpose. <laughs> to see what we could do in the future. Gratitude, you know, consists of a lively expectation of favors to come. And your premier is the leader in Canada of a revolution of rising expectations. So my colleagues who got here too late while they were wandering around in the air, while they were in the air or on the ground, they may not have realized that Mr. Smallwood had committed the federal government to paying 90% of the cost of the paving of all the roads in Newfoundland, the building of a 400-mile improved model Trans-Canada Highway across Labrador, and the building of a tunnel under the face of Belle Isle, which will be longer, more magnificent, and more expensive than the tunnel across the English Channel, which has taken 200 years to begin. 
So I think this has been a good day for you, Father <laughs> I don't know whether it's a good day for the minister for Nancy Ottawa or not. You know, it's wonderful to cooperate with the Premier and the government of Newfoundland, but it's dangerous. All I can do this afternoon, of course, is say, well, we'll give the matter sympathetic consideration. If it costs a billion dollars, we can't do it. If it costs anything under one million dollars, it's yours. Anyway, whatever may happen in the future, we know what has happened in the last 10 or 15 years in the development of this problem. It's one of the finest and most exciting stories in the whole history of Canada, and one of the most exciting chapters in that story is the completion of the Trans-Canada Highway. Thank you very much for letting me be with you today. Now, the tunnel Premier Smallwood pushed for or was talking about would not happen, although over the history of Newfoundland and Labrador, it's always been talked about. However, the south coast of Labrador, which was isolated from the rest of North America, would finally have a completion of the Trans-Labrador Highway in 2009 and upgrades made to Route 389, which would finally connect it to the rest of the North American road network. Nonetheless, this event in 1966 would be the last official ceremony a PM would participate in celebrating the completion of the Trans-Canadian Highway. However, it's important to note that it wasn't until 1971, five years after, that the Trans-Canadian Highway would finally be completed paved end-to-end -to, -end to the standards set out in the original Highway Act at a cost of over $1 billion. In 1971, the completion of the milestone was not marked by a ceremony, but a modest final report issued by the Minister of Public Works at the time. Upon its completion in 1971, the Trans-Canadian Highway was the most lengthy, uninterrupted highway in the world. Today, the Trans-Canadian Highway is the second longest national highway in the world, and the work continues with modifications and additions being added every year. Most of the highway and road construction is a provincial responsibility. Provinces decide on the design, construction, safety standards, and financing of the highways under their jurisdiction. The Government of Canada, however, is solely responsible for the maintenance and repair of the Trans-Canadian Highway inside national parks. And the work continues. Some of the major work projects include the twinning and doubling to four lanes of Highway 1 in the Rockies, which has been happening for the past couple of years. As well, the modern Trans-Canadian Highway consists of several different routes that cross Canada. Two run from Nova Scotia to New Brunswick, one of which travels to Prince Edward Island by the way of the Confederation Bridge. There are also two routes that begin west of Montreal and a few routes through Ontario. Traveling west, the main Trans-Canadian Highway, Highway 1, passes through Winnipeg, Regina, Calgary, and Banff. It then takes the highly scenic Kicking Horse Pass through the Canadian Rockies and continues through Kamloops to Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Regardless of how you choose to go, the Trans-Canadian Highway extends from Victoria in British Columbia to St. John City in Newfoundland and Labrador. It passes through all 10 Canadian provinces and links all major cities in the country. It's something all Canadians can be proud of. So now on to the stamps that celebrate the Trans-Canadian Highway. There have been two stamps released to celebrate it, although I should note there are many stamps celebrating Canadian highways. These are the only two specifically celebrating the Trans-Canadian Highway. We'll save those other stamps such as the Scenic Routes and the Alaskan Highway stamps for other episode. So let's now dig into these two stamps 
specifically honoring the Trans-Canadian Highway. The first stamp was issued in 1962 when Canada Post released a stamp in conjunction with the official opening of the Trans-Canadian Highway. It was released August 31st, 1962, a couple of days before the opening ceremony at Rogers Pass by Prime Minister Diefenbaker. The stamp was designed by Alan L. Pollock. The picture was engraved by Yves Barrel and the lettering engraved by Donald J. Mitchell. The stamp depicts 10 provincial coat of arms, five on each side, with a solid two-lane black line representing the Trans-Canadian running through it. It's a five-cent denomination stamp, and 25 million of these stamps were printed by the Canadian Bank Note Company Limited. Some interesting tidbits as well. The date for this stamp is hidden on the coat of arms for Prince Edward Island, which is the second coat of arms in the second row. Also, the stamp designer's initials can be found on the bottom right corner of the stamp under the symbol for cents. That PUC is the initial for Alan L. Pollock. The second stamp celebrating the Trans-Canadian Highway came as part of Canada's 150 celebration, and it was a celebration of the 1971 completion of the Trans-Canadian Highway. This stamp was released in June 2017 by Canada Post and was the fifth stamp released in their Canada 150 celebration offering. The stamp was designed by Roy White and Liz Wersinger of Subplot Design in Vancouver, BC, and printed by the Low Martin Group. It comes in the shape of a maple leaf and depicts a green Trans-Canada sign for Highway 1 in Alberta. The stamp measures 40 millimeters by 40 millimeters and is printed in six colors plus tagging. These self-adhesive stamps are available in a booklet of 10 and there were a total of 4 million stamps printed. The stamp was also available on a gum pane of 10 stamps with circle perforations and 4.5 centimeters in diameter with 80,000 panes being printed. Finally, the stamp was also available as an official first day cover with a cancellation in Ottawa, Ontario, and it was available in a pack of 10. This set contains for me some of my most favorite official first day covers from Canada Post. The first day cover on the front side has, of course, the stamp cancelled on the release date of June 1st, with the cancellation being out of Ottawa. It contains a map of the Trans-Canadian Highway showing the various routes along the country. On the lower portion of the map are images of the several unique attractions one can see along the Trans-Canadian Highway, including the Wooden Head in Reverstoke, BC, Mac the Moose in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and the Big Nickel in Sudbury, Ontario. On the reverse is a couple of paragraphs about the history of the Trans-Canadian Highway, and the corner photo gives you a peek at the Rockies. Now, if you don't have any of these stamps, don't worry. While these stamps are sold out on the Canada Post online store, you can still find them with relative ease on the secondary market. And it's a fun little addition to any collection. So that's it for the 26th episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing this show with your friends. We also appreciate you rating the show on your favorite app. Taking the time to do so helps people find our show. Also, don't forget, if you're looking for more info about the show, make sure to check us out at stampstories.ca. Also on our website, you'll be able to find the stamps mentioned in this episode and other cool historical material by clicking on the notes tab on our website or by visiting the link we've added to the description of this podcast. Don't forget, if you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories, or more, we'd love to hear it too. You can email us over at feedback at stampstories.ca. Finally, if you're on Instagram or Twitter, follow us at our handle stampstoriesca, all one word. It's the best place besides our website to get updates about this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Happy collecting. <laughs>